As we have declared this morning in song, we're here this morning celebrating Advent because, simply put, we cannot save ourselves. We need a Messiah. And Advent celebrates His coming. Indeed, as we'll find out over the next several weeks, it celebrates His two comings. For the past 12 weeks, we've been working our way through Romans chapter 8, or as I like to call it, the greatest chapter in the Bible. But before we press on into Romans chapter 9, which is one of the more difficult chapters in the Bible, I thought that it would be wise for us to take a break during the month of December and to rest up, as it were, before we dive back into the deep end of the biblical pool December has five weeks, and we are going to spend those five weeks on an Advent series in the book of Isaiah, focusing upon the coming of the Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ. Over the course of this month, we will explore the need for the Messiah from Isaiah chapter 1, looking at the sinfulness of man which necessitated the coming of the Savior. We'll look at the promise of the Messiah from Isaiah chapter 7, looking at the prophecy of the coming of Emmanuel, who is God with us. We'll look at the birth of the Messiah from Isaiah chapter 9, which looks at the prophecy of the birth of the son of David, which we heard this morning from Isaiah 9, 2 through 7, the first advent of Christ. We'll look at the death of the Messiah from Isaiah 53, exploring the suffering of the servant of the Lord who secured for us our redemption. And finally, on the last Sunday of December, we will celebrate the reign of the Messiah from Isaiah 33, looking at the coming triumph of the Messiah at his second advent. The holiday season is hectic, at least it is for the Hopped family, and I'm sure it is for many of you as well. Between the, the Christmas shopping Uh, The Christmas parties, the Christmas travel, the Christmas celebrations. I always seem to come to the end of the season wishing that I had spent more time enjoying Christ and rejoicing in His Advent. And so my prayer is that these five sermons during the month of December would be weekly opportunities for our church to refocus our attention upon Christ and His coming for our salvation. My hope is that these five sermons would would infiltrate our Christmas celebrations that happen between the Sundays. I've never preached a full month of Advent sermons before, but I hope and trust that God will use them to glorify His name and to edify His people. And since we will be spending the entire month with Isaiah... I thought it would be wise in this first week to take a little bit of time this morning and familiarize ourselves with the prophet and with the historical and political and spiritual context in which he ministered. The very first verse of the book introduces us to Isaiah and it helps us to locate his ministry within the Old Testament. Verse 1 says, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. 
And from that very brief superscript, we, we learn really three items of importance. First, we learn that Isaiah was a prophet whose ministry occurred between the years approximately of 740 B.C. to 686 B.C. Isaiah lived a long life and he enjoyed a long ministry. We know this by the dates of the reigns of the four kings of Judah, which he mentions in verse 1. Second, we learn that while Isaiah prophesied numerous oracles of woe and judgment upon the other nations, Israel included, his prophetic ministry was primarily addressed to the southern kingdom of Judah. You remember that after the death of Solomon, the nation of Israel divided into two nations, the north and the south, the northern kingdom of Israel with its capital in Samaria, the southern kingdom of Judah with with its capital in Jerusalem. Isaiah was a southern prophet. Thirdly, I think Isaiah's name is instructive. In Hebrew, it means the Lord saves which is fitting because I think that's the best summary of Isaiah's prophetic ministry. He is announcing a coming salvation for the people of God. In addition to these details, in the rest of the book of Isaiah, we we learn that Isaiah had a wife who is simply called the prophetess in Isaiah 8.3. And she bore Isaiah two sons. Now, if you're looking for uh, future names of your kids, Tyne and Kellen, you might want to pay attention. Um, one son was Shear Jashub, which means a remnant shall return. And the second was my personal favorite, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. I just want to throw my um, advice your way, right? Which means uh, the spoil speeds and the prey hastens. Both of those come from Isaiah 7 and 8. Uh, More to the point, we know that Isaiah was a literary genius, as evidenced by the exquisite poetry which his prophecies display. Even non-believers who are schooled in ancient literature marvel at this book. It's amazing. It's beautiful. It's complex. Jewish tradition tells us that Isaiah's father, whose name was Amos, was the brother of King Uzziah of Judah, which would make Isaiah a member of the royal family, which would explain his continuous access to the kings of Judah. He's not an outsider. He doesn't live out in the desert. He lives in the royal courts. Jewish tradition also tells us that Isaiah was martyred by the evil king Manasseh, that it is Isaiah who is referred to in Hebrews 11.37, the one who was sawn in two. But by far, the most significant thing about Isaiah is his name. The Lord saves. Because the Lord's salvation is certainly the theme of Isaiah's book, and it's going to be the theme of this Advent series. Isaiah prophesied during a time of devastating spiritual decline despite the fact that three of the four kings that are mentioned in verse 1 were generally good kings and generally godly men. King Uzziah, who is called Azariah in 2 Kings 15, reigned over Judah for 52 years. His reign began well. 2 Chronicles 26 says, And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. 
he set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of the Lord. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. But ultimately, Uzziah failed to bring about a reversal of this long spiritual decline of his people. So 2 Kings 15.4 says, Nevertheless, the high places, those are places of pagan worship, the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. During his reign, Uzziah and the nation itself grew immensely powerful, and they experienced tremendous military success. But at the end of Uzziah's reign, it all came crashing down. 2 Chronicles 26 again. And his fame spread far, for he was marvelously helped until he was strong. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God, and he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. In other words, in his pride, Uzziah reached for power beyond that which God had allotted to him. He went into the temple and he performed a ritual which the law allowed only the priests from the tribe of Levi to perform. And even when Azariah, the high priest, and 80 other members of the priesthood begged Uzziah not to do so, not to do this wicked thing, Uzziah persisted in his pride. And immediately the Lord struck him with leprosy. And he remained a leper, an outcast, until the day of his death, excluded from the temple, excluded from his household, living in uncleanness and isolation outside of the city. It was in the year that King Uzziah died, sometime around the year 740 B.C., that Isaiah 6.1 says Isaiah received his prophetic call. Uzziah's son, Jotham, reigned 16 years. And in much the same way as his father, he was politically successful, personally spiritual, but failed to slow the decline of the people. Once again, we read, And Jotham did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Uzziah had done. Nevertheless, the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and made offerings upon the high places. Ahaz, the third king mentioned, is a fellow we'll meet next week. He was a weak king and a wicked man. According to 2 Kings... Chapter 16, Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering, according to the despicable practices of the nation whom the Lord drove out from before his people Israel. He sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. And it was during the reign of Ahaz that the northern kingdom of Israel fell to the Assyrians and Judah was put under heavy taxation. The fourth king mentioned, Hezekiah, was a shining light in the lineage of David. 2 Kings 18 says, And Hezekiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that David his father had done. He removed the high places. He broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. He's trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him, 
and wherever he went, he prospered. It was during Hezekiah's reign that God's miraculous destruction of the Assyrian king Sennacherib and his army took place. When in one night, the angel of the Lord slew 185,000 Assyrians outside the gates of Jerusalem. Nevertheless, we find that the wickedness of the people continued to decline. The spiritual condition continued to grow worse and worse. His son Manasseh was the vilest king in Judah's history, leading the people astray, 2 Kings 21, to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed from before the people of Israel. And it was during, during the reign of Manasseh, according to tradition, that Isaiah fled from the king, hid in the hollow of a cedar tree, where he was surrounded by the king's men and upon the king's orders was sawn in two. So this is the political and historical context in which Isaiah prophesied. It was a time of slow spiritual decline, followed by, in the days of Hezekiah, a brief period of revival, which was then followed by a disastrous plunge into wickedness. It was a time of political instability, Isaiah saw Israel both at the height of power under Uzziah and Jotham's reign, then on the verge of collapse under Ahaz and Hezekiah, and then once again witnessing the Lord's miraculous deliverance of his people in Hezekiah's time. And it was against this backdrop that Isaiah came and prophesied the coming of a Messiah. The book of Isaiah is not arranged chronologically as is evidenced by the fact that Isaiah's prophetic call comes in chapter 6 instead of chapter 1. Jeremiah's book is arranged more or less chronologically because Jeremiah's call comes in the very first chapter. It's not the same with Isaiah. The book of Isaiah is arranged thematically. And Isaiah 1 to 5 forms a kind of introductory unit to the rest of the book. Though the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 1 is undated, The internal evidence suggests that it came very late in Isaiah's ministry, probably near around the beginning of Manasseh's reign, shortly before Isaiah's death. It appears that the people of Israel, the people of Judah, rather, have forgotten the terror of the Assyrian invasion. They've forgotten the miraculous deliverance that the Lord had worked for them in the days of Hezekiah. They've returned to their pagan practices even worse than before, all the while maintaining this religious machinery of the temple worship. In response, in Isaiah chapter 1, God gives them two options. Either the people can repent and God will cleanse them from their sin, or they can continue in their rebellion and God will destroy them. Either way, God will establish his everlasting kingdom and he will enthrone his everlasting king. And both salvation and judgment will belong to the Lord alone. All right, that's the backdrop, not only for Isaiah 1, but for this entire series that we're going to explore over the next five weeks. Isaiah chapter 1 functions like a courtroom scene. Isaiah is the prosecuting attorney, the Lord is the judge, and Israel 
is the defendant on trial. And in this opening prophecy, Isaiah brings a damning indictment against the people of God. Isaiah begins by summoning the heavens and the earth to witness the charges. Verse 2, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Now the reason Isaiah calls the, the heavens and the earth to witness the charges against Israel for their breaking of the covenant is because the Lord had called them to bear witness at the very forging of the covenant. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, the Lord says, Deuteronomy 4.26, I will call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but you will be utterly destroyed. Now, from the very beginning then, God predicted, even as he was making the covenant with them, Deuteronomy 4, God is addressing his people on the other side of the Jordan River. They're getting ready to enter into the promised land. God is getting ready to give the land to his people, to destroy the Canaanites from before them, to set them, his covenant people, in their covenant land. And even from the very beginning, he tells them, you're going to fail. You're going to break covenant. You're going to come underneath my judgment. And now, some 800 years later, 700 years later, that prediction, that prophecy has come to full fruition. And God calls these witnesses, the heavens and the earth, he calls them back into the divine courtroom to testify to the truth of what he had said, to the justice of his divine judgment, which he's getting ready to lay forth. After the witnesses are called, Isaiah begins to read the charges against Israel, which are found in verses 2 to 17. In verses 18 to 20, he pauses to issue Israel an invitation to repentance, a plea deal of sorts. But then he picks up the indictment again in verses 21 to 23. And then in 24 to 31, Isaiah delivers the Lord's verdict, a sentence which is mingled with judgment and mercy. So let's look at verses 2 to 17 and then 21 to 23. And I'm going to show you that the Lord, or Isaiah rather, indicts the people on three primary charges. Three primary charges form the core of this indictment of Israel. And as we'll see by extension, on humanity itself. First, God charges his people with covenant infidelity in verses 2 through 9. Then he charges them with religious hypocrisy in verses 10 to 7. And then finally with social degeneracy in verses 21 to 23. Let's take a look at each. First, God himself speaks in order to charge the entire nation of Israel with treason. With the breaking of the covenant. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The sin of Israel is like the rebellion of a child who's grown up with every advantage provided by a loving father, but who, when he is full grown, turns his back on his father's will and his father's ways and goes in a completely different direction. Now, anyone who has experienced the willful rebellion of a wayward child knows something of the heartache and the anger that lies behind these words. 
The foolishness of Israel's rebellion is then graphically demonstrated in verse 3. He says, the ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib or manger or feeding trough. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Oxen and donkeys are not known for their intelligence or for their submissiveness. But even the ox and the donkey, dumb and stubborn as they can be, know where to go to find food, and they know not to bite the hand that feeds them. Israel is dumber and more stubborn than an ox and a donkey. And so are all mankind. Israel is so ignorant that it repeatedly turns its back on the God who alone gives them life and breath and every good thing. But such is the nature of sin, isn't it? Sin is dumb. It's ignorant. It's the height of foolishness. To rebel against the Lord is the most irrational and unintelligent act imaginable. You don't want to be dumber than an ox or more stubborn than a donkey? Repent. That's my summary of Isaiah 1. In verse 4, Isaiah, acting as the prosecuting attorney, then piles on the descriptions of Israel's rebellion, which emphasize their complete depravity. O sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly, they have forsaken the Lord, they have despised the Holy One of Israel, they are utterly estranged. This verse is full of covenant language. Though Israel is the nation, the people, the offspring, the children, those are covenant terms, yet they are a sinful nation. They are a people laden with iniquity. They are the offspring of evildoers. They are children who deal corruptly. Isaiah concludes that they've broken their covenant with God, with the Holy One of Israel. And listen to the finality of these charges. They have forsaken the Lord. They are utterly estranged. There's no relationship left. They have no hope in themselves. Their only hope is in God's mercy, which will come in verse 18. Isaiah then uses two graphic images to describe Israel's present condition. First, he says they're like a diseased and broken body. They're like a person who has suffered a terrible beating, but whose wounds have not been properly treated, but rather are just left to fester into gangrenous sores. Verses 5 and 6. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Then he switches metaphors and he compares Israel to a hut or a tent in the middle of a field after the harvest. When the produce is gone, when the workers have left, and this tent is surrounded by nothing but empty stalks and trampled ground. Or, he says, Israel is like a besieged city, burning, famished filled with a a, a palpable dread of a surrounding and impending doom. This is what is left of the glory of Zion. Nothing but desolate 
cities smoldering and smoking in the aftermath of the Assyrian invasion. Verses 7 and 8, your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a tent in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. It's quite the picture of sin, isn't it? That's where sin leaves you. It simply cannot fulfill what it promises. It always leaves you desolate and devastated. It's only because the angel of the Lord destroyed the Assyrian army that Judah was not left completely destroyed, a smoldering ruin like Sodom and Gomorrah, verse 9. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we would have become like Sodom. We would have become like Gomorrah. So the first charge that Isaiah lays to Israel's account is covenant infidelity. They have been unfaithful to their covenant with God. The second charge against Israel is that of religious hypocrisy. And Isaiah opens up the second indictment with with more just strong, stunning language. Even though God has prevented them from experiencing the same fate as Sodom and Gomorrah, yet that's precisely what they've become. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Who's he speaking to? He's speaking to his people. He's speaking to Israel. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Now, what would you expect to follow in verse 11? Now, Israel has just referred, or Isaiah rather, has just referred to Israel as people of Sodom and people of Gomorrah. Surely, you think, he's getting ready to rail against homosexuality or sexual immorality in their ranks, right? Wrong. That's not where he goes. Now, he could have. Sodomy was not unknown in Israel, as Judges 19 so graphically points out. And God does find homosexuality abominable and worthy of destruction as the entirety of Scripture makes clear. But notice this. The Lord intentionally calls them Sodom and Gomorrah and yet does not go the the sexual route. Rather, he goes to their idolatry. Why? Because there's something that the Lord hates even more than sexual immorality. And that's hypocrisy. God hates hypocritical worship. He detests it. He abominates it. Were it not for his mercy, he would open up the heavens and rain down fire and brimstone upon it. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. 
Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Now, it's worth noting that there's nothing mentioned in these verses that's outside the bounds of acceptable worship, right? Offerings, bulls, lambs, goats, new moons, Sabbaths, all that stuff is commanded in Scripture. So what's the problem? I mean, it's not like God is accusing Israel of child sacrifice or pagan idol worship, although, as we have seen, he could have, but that's not where he goes. Rather, what God condemns in this passage is pure worship offered with impure hands. Wash yourselves, verse 16. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. God hates hypocritical worship. He cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly, verse 13. He is filled with wrath when we try to touch the ark of his covenant with unclean hands. Why? Why? Because to do so is to treat him like a pagan god. The pagan gods are not holy. They're just more powerful than we are. Therefore, they don't need to be loved or reverenced or worshipped with a whole heart and soul and mind and strength. They just need to be paid off. They just need to be appeased with gifts and offerings, rituals. When Israel lived in unrepentant evil and injustice and corruption yet continued to keep all of the prescribed sacrifices, all of the offerings, and all of the festivals. In effect, they were saying, the Lord does not require our faith and obedience and love. He only requires our sacrifices and rituals. We need not worship him with our whole lives. We need only buy him off and keep him happy. Now, At this point, it would be wise to ask yourself, did I sing songs with unclean lips this morning? Do I intend to approach the Lord's table with impure hands? Oh, sinful people can sing worship songs and it can be an acceptable, joyful noise unto the Lord. Sinners, in fact, are the only kind of people that can approach the Lord's table but not the unrepentant. Not those who come before the Lord with a high heart. Lacking the humility that says, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Beware of hypocritical worship, church. The Lord hates it. Remember what happened to the 
folks in the church at Corinth when they tried to bring hypocritical worship before the Lord, when they tried to touch the Lord's table with unclean hands? Paul said to them in 1 Corinthians 11, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. I don't know all that that means, but it can't be good. Let a person therefore examine himself, and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. You know what was going on in Corinth that Paul condemns in 1 Corinthians 11 is the New Testament equivalent of what was going on in Jerusalem that Isaiah condemns in Isaiah 1. The church is not immune from the sins of the Old Testament. Beware of religious hypocrisy. The third charge against the people of Israel is for social degeneracy. They worshipped like pagans because they lived like pagans. Or maybe, flip it around, they lived like pagans because they worshipped like pagans. There's a, there's a connection there. Either way, the holy nation was now no better than the unholy Gentiles that surrounded them. Verse 21, how the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice. Righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Just as in Hosea's acted parable, the faithful covenant wife, Israel, has sold herself as a prostitute. Even the best of Israel has become corrupted. It's silver has become so corrupted by sin that it's now completely dross. Its wine has become so diluted by iniquity that it's completely lost its potency. Its rulers devour the very people that they're supposed to protect. Murder, bloodshed, violence, greed, bribery, idolatry, immorality. This is what the holy nation has become. A socially degenerate, religiously hypocritical, covenantally unfaithful people. And with that, Isaiah rests his case against the people of God. Now, it's important for us to note at this point that Israel in Isaiah 1 stands as a microcosm for all of humanity. What God did with Israel was in one sense a replay of what he had done with humanity as a whole. God had made a covenant with the human race in the Garden of Eden. But in Adam, all mankind had forsaken that covenant. All men, you, me, all of us, have broken covenant with our Creator. We have suppressed the knowledge of God in in creation and in our own conscience. We've forsaken the Father who created us, the King who rules over us, the God who provides for us. Just like Israel, we are a people laden with iniquity, the offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. Verse 4. Just like Israel, we have forsaken the Lord and despised the Holy One and are utterly estranged from our God. 
Just like Israel, our whole being is diseased and corrupted. Verses 5 and 6. Desolate and besieged. Verses 7 and 8. Just like Israel, we too have offered to God false worship. Just meager attempts to buy God off and keep him happy. To placate his wrath so that he will either bless us or just leave us alone. Verses 11 to 15. Just like Israel, the whole of human society has become thoroughly corrupt, ruled by greed and violence and immorality. And just like Israel, there is no hope to be found in ourselves. A diseased tree cannot bear clean fruit. Salvation must come from outside of us. We need a Savior. We need a Messiah. Well, the case against Israel having been prosecuted by Isaiah, the Lord then issues his verdict from the throne of his judgment. Verse 24, therefore the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. So Israel's been found guilty as charged and the sentence is death. Note again the language that the Lord uses to describe his avenging justice. He says, executing his just and righteous vengeance upon Israel will bring him relief. It will bring him comfort. The idea seems to be that God suffers under the iniquity of his people. That his divine honor and holiness are put under such strain and duress by the rebellion of sinners that to punish them in their iniquity actually brings him comfort. Wow. He then calls Israel his chosen covenant people. He calls them enemies and foes. Verse 24, strong language and it ought to strike fear into your heart if you're outside of Christ this morning reminds me of the author of Hebrews warning that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God who would find it a comfort to punish you in his wrath your sin has made you wearisome to God verse 24 says he desires relief from you You are his enemy, you are his adversary, you are the object of his vengeance apart from Christ. And yet, in a surprising turn of events, judgment is not going to have the final say. Rather, God will refine, restore, and ultimately redeem his people. He says in verse 25, I will turn my hand against you, And will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. In other words, God is not going to utterly cast away his people. Rather, he's going to put them through tribulation, in Israel's case, exile. In order to smelt away their dross, to remove their impure alloys. With the result that when he is finished, she will be a city of righteousness, a faithful city, 
ruled by faithful judges and counselors, which historically I think is a reference to the New Testament church. When God's refining work on Zion is done, Zion, which represents in prophetic literature the redeemed, true people of God, Zion will be a pure and chaste and faithful bride made ready for her husband. Judgment will not have the final word for the people of God. Mercy will triumph. But what makes the difference between those who will be redeemed and refined and those who will be burned away as dross? Are you the gold or the silver rather or are you the dross? Are you the pure metal or are you the alloy? Who's going to inhabit Zion while the rest are destroyed as God's enemies and adversaries? Verse 27, Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. For they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired and you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers and like a garden without water and the strong shall become like tinder and his work like a spark and both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. Those who repent will be redeemed by righteousness. Rebels and sinners will be broken. And those who forsake the Lord will be consumed. It's repentance that makes the difference between the two groups. Between redemption and and vengeance. Between salvation and judgment. The oaks and the gardens in these verses are a reference to the elements of pagan idolatry. In other words, those who choose the pagan idols, they're going to be destroyed. Those who forsake their pagan idols and turn once again to the Lord, they will be saved. Translate that. Those, those who choose their sins, their, their objects of hope to bring them lasting happiness, they'll be destroyed. Those who forsake their sins and turn to Christ for their everlasting hope and happiness will be saved. And so Isaiah has acted as the Lord's prosecuting attorney. He's erected an airtight case against Israel and by extension against all mankind, including us. We've broken covenant with God. We've blasphemed him with our false worship. We've degenerated into such a corrupt and wicked people that it would be a relief for God to destroy us. The Lord's rendered his verdict. We're guilty, sentenced to the fires of his wrath. Nevertheless, the Lord will redeem a people for himself. Zion will be a city of righteousness, a faithful bride of her king. Now, as is so often the case in Hebrew prophecy, the main point of the chapter doesn't come at the end. It comes at the middle, at the center. Hebrew poetry tends to erect their their stanzas around the main idea. So having been brought before the bar of God's justice, having heard the case against them, having seen the evidence Having issued the verdict, God astonishingly astonishingly offers them a plea bargain. Verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. 
for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The judge offers them and us today a full pardon, full forgiveness, restoration of the covenant relationship, enjoyment of the covenant blessings. All it takes, all it takes is a change of heart. Turn from your faithlessness to faith. Turn from your religious hypocrisy to true worship. Turn from your degenerate lifestyle to holiness. It really is an incredible offer of mercy. Repent and be saved. Continue to rebel and be destroyed. Now, up to this point, Isaiah has said nothing but what every other prophet in Israel's history has said. Right? This is, this is just the message of the prophets. You've sinned. You've broken covenant with the Lord. God will destroy you in judgment, except you repent. That's the message of every Old Testament prophet, is it not? Now ask yourself a question. Did it ever work? Was it ever effective? Did Israel ever turn from her wickedness and idolatry and become a faithful people to the Lord for more than a single generation? Never. Why? Because there is a gaping hole in the middle of Isaiah 1, and Isaiah knows it. That's why there's 65 more chapters. Particularly chapters 40 to 66. Sinful man needs more than a call to repent and an offer of pardon. There are two glaring problems that emerge from Isaiah 1, problems that the future chapters of Isaiah will resolve. First, the offer of pardon is contingent upon genuine repentance, and genuine repentance necessitates a changed heart. But by the time of of Isaiah, Israel and mankind in general has proven herself incapable of repentance. Moses knew this all the way back in the 15th century B.C., Deuteronomy 29.4. To this day, he says, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. Jeremiah knew it a thousand years later in the 6th century B.C. When he said, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? What's the answer to that? No. Then neither can you, who are accustomed to doing evil, Turn and do good. You can't repent. Sinners cannot change their own hearts. They cannot heal their own disease. They cannot make themselves willing. They cannot repent. They need more than an offer of pardon. They need more than a call to repent. They need to be born again. And that's precisely what sinners receive in Christ. Jesus answered Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. But with the advent, the coming of the Messiah, also came the outpouring of the spirit. That wind 
John 3.8, that blows where he will. And this spirit transforms the hearts of people and he makes them new so that their scarlet sins become white as snow and their crimson stains become white like wool. The Messiah had to come because the sinful heart cannot heal itself. The second glaring problem emerges explicitly in verse 27. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. What? Okay, don't fly over that. There's a problem here. Redemption and justice, pardon and righteousness, they don't go together. Pardon, mercy, is not justice. Mercy, quite frankly, has no place in a court of law. The courtroom is the place to uphold the law, to execute justice, not to set it aside. When sinners stand before the bar of God's judgment, they must be declared guilty or else the judge is himself guilty of injustice. So how, Isaiah asks, can repentant sinners be redeemed By righteousness. Oh, First Baptist Nixa, you're thinking Romans 3. You're thinking, I know the answer to that. God gives a righteousness to sinners. How? Because God gave his son to face his righteous wrath in our place. Isaiah's answer will come in the 53rd chapter. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him came the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Every one of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the Messiah. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, for he shall bear their iniquities. What Paul will later expound in glorious detail, Isaiah prophesied first. The unrighteous will be pardoned because the righteous one will take their place in the judgment of God. The just penalty of sin will be executed upon the Messiah in order that sinners may be justified and healed. What Paul called justification by substitution, Isaiah calls redemption by righteousness. What sinners need is atonement, and atonement is the very thing sinners can't provide. In other words, Isaiah 1 is just screaming out for a Messiah. Without his saving work, Isaiah 1 is just another empty promise of mercy dependent upon a repentance that we can't effect and a justification that we can't work. Listen to Andrew Davis, who in 2017 published a wonderful short little commentary on Isaiah. He said this, In the cleansing fountain of Christ's redeeming blood alone, our filth and sinful wickedness can be cleansed. In Christ alone, 
we can stop doing wrong and learn to do right. In Christ alone, we can stop bringing meaningless sacrifices. In Christ alone, we can learn genuine concern for the poor and the widow and the orphan. In Christ alone, even though our sins are like scarlet, they can be as white as snow and as pure as wool. In Christ alone, can God make wicked sinners like us righteous in his sight. And through his death on the cross, the penitent ones will be redeemed with justice. Written seven centuries before Christ, the entire chapter yearns for Jesus to come and to make it a reality. Isaiah chapter 1 is but empty words apart from the coming of Jesus. In fact, it fell on deaf ears when Isaiah preached it. Isaiah 6, 9 to 13. But we're here celebrating Advent because Christ has now come. He has come He has died. He has risen again. He's come to change sinners' hearts for them. He's come to atone for their sins. Christ has come so that you can come to Christ. So come. Come to him for cleansing for your sins. Come to him for healing for your soul. Come to him for atonement and redemption and pardon. Come to him for eternal life and a new heart and and a whitewashed soul. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. In this moment, my encouragement to you is to recognize that you need a Messiah. Isaiah 1 teaches you that your sins have made you an offense to God. That you are under his judgment and under his wrath. And yet he offers you fullness of pardon. Cleansing of sin. Healing for your disease. All you must do is repent. But you say, "I, I can't. I look within my heart and I love sin. And I don't love God. My exhortation to you this morning is to turn to Christ and to confess that very thing to him. Ask him to change your heart. Ask him to cause you to be born again. Ask him to give you birth by water and the spirit so that you may enter the kingdom of God. Ask him. He is your only hope for a changed heart. Cling to Christ this morning. Ask him, and he will not turn you away.